So it's been a week, and the Blue Jays kind of are right where we found them last Monday. And of course, that was before the four-game embarrassment at the hands of the Texas Rangers. But tried to a tell you, perfect nine-for-nine nine weekend in terms of Blue Jays wins and Mariners Rangers losses. I put the Blue Jays back in a pretty good spot uh, to talk about that and more. Let's bring our next guest, David Sampson, former president of the Miami Marlins and host of the Nothing Personal podcast with David Sampson. David, good morning. How are we? Good morning. I am great. Uh, that's good to hear. Uh, how's the uh, how's the training going? This is it. It's challenge week. So starting Friday at 10 a.m., I start a 48-hour challenge raising money for Parkinson's. We'll be running four miles every four hours all weekend. And uh, I'm starting to carbo load. So that's a great week when you don't run as much and you eat anything you want. It's like the it's it's kind of like the Blue Jays week here. It's it's going to be hell for what you said forty eight hours for uh four miles every forty eight hours or what was that again? Four miles every four hours. Four hours or four, four hours. 48 for hours. For forty eight hours. That is a bit so, of a mouthful, but like it's yeah. it's feast and famine, right? <laughs> like it's going to be rough, like it was against the Texas Rangers. But the carbo load, I mean, that's got to be pretty good. What's the what's the choice of carbs for you? Oh, it's. A combination of pizza, mm. pasta, and then I have chicken with Hostess cupcakes, maybe oh. some yodels and ding-dongs. You never know. Oh, okay. I'm a big candy guy. So I, I don't know if it's the, the pre-race eating that many people do, but I, I'm a sugar guy, to say the least. But it's, it's about getting sleep and about not letting anxiety take over. And that's something you actually talk to your players about as you head into the last two weeks when you're about to make the playoffs. Or even if you're in the playoffs already and have clinched like the Rays and the Orioles have, this is a pretty important time as you set up for October. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, I didn't even realize I was getting ready to to run the the race that you're running this weekend because I've been prepping for that my whole <laughs> life in terms of ding dongs and yoo-hoos and lots of pasta and chicken. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm wholly on on board with that. You know, you mentioned the the kind of mental game or the the right way you want to have your headspace at this time of year. I mean, this Blue Jays team has been up and down. You could say that about a lot of the teams that are kind of fighting in the, the wild card spot. You know, there's a lot of sayings, a lot of ways to look at in baseball of, oh, momentum's as good as the next day's starting pitcher, or no, you can really kind of boost yourself after a big series win. How hard is it to kind of manage just personally the the ups and downs emotionally at this time of year? I mean, like we said, to, to dial it in on the Jays, they get swept by the Rangers and it feels like the walls are caving in and that was the end of the season. And then, Oh, look, look at that. They're pretty comfortably in a wild card spot today after a three game sweep at Boston. Well, what's it like kind of dealing or, or trying to manage the, the ups and downs for, from the players at this time of year? Well, I started in baseball in 1999. My first season was 2000 and in 2003. So it was my fourth season. We were, trying to make the playoffs with the Marlins. And in August, we had a stretch where we lost eight out of nine games. And I was completely panicked. And I went to speak to our manager, Jack McKeon, who taught me a lesson that Jim Beatty before him and many others before him had tried. But McKeon said to me, Sparky, which was my nickname, you've got to relax. You've got to understand how baseball works. You are going to have weeks when you stink and you think you're never going to win. You're going to have weeks when you're unreal and you think you're never going to lose, and neither one of those is true. We then went on to win seven in a row and eight out of nine and got us right back to where we were as we made the playoffs and won a World Series. And from that moment on, 
I became much more level, almost robotic about wins and losses on a daily basis because it is so important not to get swept up in yesterday because tomorrow is coming so quickly. And that mentality is important for a team to have. And the Blue Jays seem to have it because when you get swept by the Rangers and then sweep the Red Sox, knowing that you control your own destiny heading into two straight weeks with the Yankees and the Rays, you're right where you want to be. I wish that they had clinched and that's what the front office is thinking. But that said, we'd rather be in our position than in the Yankees position. And you'd rather be in the Blue Jays position than I think both the Rangers and Mariners, right? Like if you handicap this, this stretch here, David, the fact that the Rangers and Mariners play each other seven times is very, very important. But with four series left, it's the Yankees and the Rays. Uh, the Rays may or may not have a lot to play for. Uh, the Yankees are a team. Hey, they might see Garrett Cole twice, which would be difficult for the Blue Jays. But just by virtue of how the schedule works right now, uh, is the position even stronger than it appears in the standings for the Blue Jays with four series remaining? So we're rooting for splits with the Rangers and Mariners. You just don't want any team sweeping because if let's just say that the Rangers sweep, then you know that they're going to be in. Then you've got to think that Seattle's then losing. So they're going to be out. So then the Blue Jays can say, Oh, we don't have to worry. We can be swept and we're going to be fine. I don't want our team to have that mentality. I want the Blue Jays to think that they've got to sweep to make it in. And so that's what I'm telling the team. Don't worry about scoreboard watching, control our own destiny and worry about the Yankees right now because they're dangerous. They have nothing to play for except ruining our season. And speaking as a team that didn't make the playoffs every year, except when we won the world series, the only thing that motivated us at the end was hurting other teams. We kept the Mets out of the playoffs at the end of two straight years. And we considered that a success. It's not really a success because we want it to be in the playoffs, but that's as close as you're going to get. And the Yankees don't want to hand the Blue Jays a playoff spot. I can tell you that. Oh, no, especially the Yankees of all teams, right? I mean, like you said, nobody nobody wants to just hand anybody anything, but the Yankees consider themselves, and not rightfully so, but they'll forever consider themselves the, the big brothers of, of that division and the year having gone the, the way it's gone. And then, you know, obviously this would be a little d- different if uh, Dominguez didn't get hurt uh, well, pretty much immediately when he came up. But, yeah, you certainly love the idea of playing spoiler. And, God, I can only imagine how fun that is. You know, the only thing more fun would be being in the playoffs, like you, like you said, and, hey, Hey, a pretty good track record. If you're going to get in, you might as well go go win the whole thing. Looking at the American League as a as a whole here, you know, I know a lot of people kind of still have Houston penciled in as that that top team, given the pedigree and what they are capable of. But it, it does feel like a bit of a jump ball to to me. Do, is there a kind of clear pecking order in the in the American League for you? No, there's not. Which is why I'm I'm putting my chips behind Houston because until someone takes it from them, it's theirs. And they've shown that they've got postseason grit and they win series and they find a way uh, their hitters get hot and their pitchers get hot and they don't have a lot of holes in their team. Now, of course, every year there's a team like Philadelphia last year in the National League that just comes into the playoffs and all of a sudden they can't lose. And it starts with, remember last year when you faced Nola and Wheeler, you were going to lose those games. So I'm looking to see who will have the hottest top two pitchers in the American League. I think the Astros have a chance with Valdez and Verlander, but there's teams that can get hot. So I don't want to say it's impossible, 
but until someone beats Houston, they've got to be considered the favorite. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, David. I mean, we've been kind of, at least on the Blue Jays' front, it seems like there's a clear divide in the American League. There are a couple teams they can't beat, and if they are better than uh, the team, which, you know, uh, uh, at least half the teams in the American League, the Blue Jays are firmly better than, then they generally have their way with them, and we've seen that, you know, play out over the course of the last six weeks or so. But I'm also now questioning the the top-end talent because Texas is not a complete team, at least it seems. The Mariners might have been fool's gold there for a little while. I don't know if the Baltimore Orioles are ready to win a World Series right now, so I'm kind of looking around thinking, hey, maybe the team to beat uh, is going to come from the National League, whether it's the Atlanta Braves or the Dodgers. Do you think there's a team in the American League as good as one of those two teams? Uh I don't think there's a team as good as the Braves. I think the Dodgers, they find a way to win, and that's a credit to Andrew Friedman, to Dave Roberts, and to the people they have. They have good young pitching. You don't know how that will appear in uh, October and what that will feel like. Their lineup at the top, it's MVP caliber. At the bottom, it's, you know, hit or miss. So Atlanta, to me, is rock solid. I'm definitely watching the Acuna injury. He didn't play because of calf tightness yesterday. The Braves just got swept by the Marlins. But uh, don't underestimate a team like the Orioles where you say they're not ready. We went into the playoffs. No one thought we were ready, and we got hot and won the whole darn thing. So you just never know what's going to happen, which is why you want to get in. And so the Blue Jays' focus right now is simple. Just get in because while this season has been up and down, and I was wrong having chosen them to win the AL East and predicted that before the season started, and I was completely wrong as they're going to finish in third at the uh, I still believe that they're a team that they could just as easily be last year's Philly with that lineup and get hot and ride it to the pennant. Orioles clinch over the weekend, and it is a surprise story just a little bit. I mean, everyone is ex- expecting them to be better. We understood what they had in the system. We understood what they were going to be able to have at their disposal this year. Uh, but I think they did turn things around and become maybe World Series viable quicker than expected. Is there a primary takeaway for you from their, the story of the Baltimore Orioles right now and their, uh, their sudden turnaround as a franchise? Yeah, they had a lot of distraction off the field at the ownership level. I don't know if you recall the owner, the brothers who own the team, their father, Peter Angelos, is not really uh, well. So the sons run it, and they had some family losses back and forth. And then John Angelos had some strange things to say about, about getting a new stadium in Baltimore and all sorts of things, opening his books, et cetera. I can imagine that clubhouse hunkering down and, and doing like a major league saying, Hey, let's just stay focused and get this done despite our owner. And then the, the lesson that I would take is don't believe anyone when they say it's not your time or it's too early or you're ahead of schedule That really is horse hockey to me. When your team is good, that's your time, and that's your schedule. So the Orioles, this is their year. Who knows whether or not they'll be this good next year. There's nothing to say they will. There could be young players who regress to the mean and are are more average. You just don't know. So what their GM should be telling them is, don't be satisfied with getting in. Let's win the first series and then keep going, one series at a time. So my takeaway is, Any team at any moment could be that team and don't question it, go with it and then add at the deadline and the Orioles added Flaherty. And I'm not sure that was enough. And I would have thought that they would have done more to help them in October uh, when they knew that they weren't ahead of schedule, that this was their year.
you led me exactly where I wanted to go there with it, with the Flaherty ad. And, you know, I remember seeing them add him at the deadline and saying, okay, that's, that's one nice piece. And then that was kind of, kind of it. And his first outing against the, against the Blue Jays, actually, funnily enough here, here in Toronto, he looked nails and I thought, oh, okay, maybe that is the guy. And then guess what? Jack Flaherty has had his, uh, his ups and downs uh, throughout. Uh, I know we're all floored to see that. That's kind of the way it's, it's gone for him. I'm with you. I would have loved to have seen that. Well, I wouldn't love to see it. It'd make the American league East a lot tougher but for their from their perspective this was the time to push in like you said it's never promised it's never going to be cheaper to have all that talent that you have around you especially as guys get exactly. to our beers uh, it's only going to become more more expensive uh we i, I want to go back to the Braves for a second you talk about them we all do is the the best machine in in baseball right now we talk about uh, every league like it's a copycat league uh, guess what because they all are when something works everybody tries to emulate it do you think there's one kind of team building philosophy that the that the Braves have kind of utilized that other teams will look at and try to emulate I mean for so long it was okay the Rays they do it right and then the Dodgers they're going to be the Rays with money uh the Braves obviously do it a slightly different different way there but do you think there's a kind of overarching team building philosophy that people will try to you know steal or, or copy from Atlanta Here's the problem with the way Atlanta is doing it and why I don't know that it will be copied because right now I could argue that all the young players they signed to those guaranteed deals, they're all working. And other teams look at when they sign young players and they realize, whoa, uh, we don't hit at 100%. And the likelihood is so de minimis that you will that it's a tough one to copy. So I'm not sure that you're going to see teams all of a sudden, this is of course what the union hopes that all of a sudden players are going to start signing when they're zero or one plus in experience, meaning they've been in the league for no years or one year. And all of a sudden they're getting these huge, huge long-term deals because people look at Atlanta and say, wow, Acuna is playing for free. I can't believe what a great deal they got for Riley on and on and on. And boy, they've done well with that, but that's hard to do. I think that what the Rays do is also hard to copy and teams have tried where you funnel players in and out with reckless abandon because you know there's always wh- who's next. And it's hard to do when uh, you're trying to build brand loyalty and loyalty to players. And then people look at the Dodgers and say, hey, we can't copy that. They throw their money around. Only the Mets can copy that, which they're doing. But that's only for the lifestyles of the rich and famous. So the best next team is going to say, what can we do that's not what the Rays or the Braves or the Dodgers or the Mets do, and let's get people to copy that. A team that used to be copied was the Boston Red Sox, and they just they just feel like such a departure yeah. from what was uh, now. Uh, you you have uh, faith in Heim Bloom, who was who was let go uh, last week. You you tweeted that he will run another team. So what's what am I missing there in terms of uh, you know the disconnect between a team that really really looks like it's fallen on hard times, doesn't look like it should, and is almost markedly non competitive against the Blue Jays team over the weekend, and a, a guy who was running the team. Uh, who you do have a lot of confidence in. I think people within baseball understand how decisions are made and people understand when there are meddling owners versus when there are not. And there's people who understand what is the responsibility of the chief baseball officer and what wasn't. So maybe in the media, there's talk about the bets trade, but for a hiring owner, there is zero talk about the bets trade because that was not Bloom's call. There is zero talk about the 
letting Bogarts go, Bogarts go, that was something that was a ended up being a great move. But their payroll was dictated by the owner, and then the owner steps in and says, "Here's how we need to get to that number." What Bloom is able to do better than most people in the game is create value. And that's what owners want. What the Red Sox did is they thought, let's bring in a small market GM the way the Dodgers did, but then let's cut his resources instead of adding. Whereas the Dodgers brought in Friedman as a small market GM, who's with the Rays, and gave him resources to use as a sword and said, show me what you do with money. And he was able to, over a period of a decade, where they're now 10 out of 11 years, except for that crazy year when they won 106 games and didn't win the division, but they're 10 out of 11. And the Red Sox did not let Bloom operate the way Friedman was. So that's why I think Bloom will get another chance. Hmm. Maybe they should, uh, you know, so they got a little bit of money there in Boston, a Fenway group. Uh, something tells me maybe they should open the purse strings up. Uh, they did it for Raphael Devers. Boy, if only they would have done it for Mookie Betts. Uh, something tells me uh, the trajectory of that franchise would be just a little differently. You know, uh, it is funny how quickly wins can change. Uh, again, bringing it back to the Blue Jays. After the four-game sweep of the Rangers, there were a lot of people talking about how long is the leash on this front office? How much will things change? And I don't want to ask you about if the Blue Jays need to make a change because guess what? The playoffs are going to dictate that we, we can deal with that, but uh, you know, in a month or hopefully a couple of months time. But the question I have for you is how do you think ownerships group groups look at the dynamic of some of the new front offices? I mean, there's been a lot, again, a lot of people wondering the way the years played out, if the Jays were going to make a change. And I think the question a lot of people have is, you know, you have a GM and a president in Shapiro and Atkins here. They seem pretty tied at the hip and however you feel about what is happening on the field. You know, a president of a baseball team, as you would know, has plenty of other responsibilities. There's things like renovations to the stadium and update, upgrading mm-hmm. your minor league complex. I know a lot of people roll their eyes at this stuff because guess what? Fans don't care about that. They just want the team to go win. But how much do you think a, an organization values the bigger picture business thinking of, of, a, of a front office group? You know, again, looking at the way the Blue Jays are run here with Shapiro and the president role and the NAC is more of a GM because a lot of people look at that in lockstep and given all of the other responsibilities the president has, I, I don't know that a team would look at it as, as just the, the responsibility of what's going on on the field as opposed to all the other things. Yeah, I think it was lockstep in Chicago, which is why Reinsdorf fired Williams and Hahn, even though Williams kept saying, I'm not running baseball, it's Rick Hahn who's doing it then the question is, then why would you need to fire Kenny Williams? <laughs> so when both of them are let go, the view is that they were both running baseball. My view in Toronto is a little different. I think that while they are attached at the hip, I think what Mark has done is smartly spread his risk by becoming more involved on the business side. And when you're involved on the business side, I was both business and baseball. And the reason I was never let go, even once I lost the protection of family, which I'm not sure whether that was protection or not, I was – adding value on the business side. And that's when we would let go managers or sometimes general managers. But if Mark is only doing baseball, if there's a change, it'll be Mark and Rick and, and uh, excuse me, and Ross. So therefore we're going to know for sure when a change ever gets made in Toronto, what the truth is about who's doing what, because if Mark's doing as much business as we think he is, which I do think he is, he won't be let go. It will be simply Ross.
but we'll wait to see. My hope is the Blue Jays go on and, and do great this October, and neither one loses their job. Uh, last one for me, David. I know the Mike Babcock story surfaced on your radar. It's an interesting sports story, right? There are a lot of layers to it. We were talking in the first hour about how, you know, a podcast, Spitting Chicklets, has sort of become this resource the NHL world was without, where players are comfortable, you know, talking to the media and, and letting them know when something that shouldn't be happening, I guess, was happening. So when you look at that story in Babcock's history, in a, in a once great coach sort of having his last chapter be a highly embarrassing one look at that whole story what stands out to you well i'm actually covering that live in uh 38 minutes here on nothing personal this morning but you're exactly right what fascinates me is that columbus went in with its eyes wide open knowing what his past was and yet did nothing to protect their team from the possibility of having the same behavior take place it's not as though he came in and this is brand new He's had issues with players and these sorts of boundary issues previously. He was out of the league for several years. I would think the front office would have said, all right, we want to give you a chance because you're a damn good coach. But listen, we're going to have someone just hanging out with you just to make sure that that everything is smooth. But the minute the boundary started getting broken and phones started getting tapped into, you basically are saying to yourself, my God, we're screwed here. There's nothing we can do. The avalanche has started, and there was no chance other than to let him go. So they gave him a chance to resign. But believe me, he didn't resign without first having been told that he was going to be terminated. And I'll talk more about it in nothing personal. I don't want to take all of your time. But it's a tough thing for an organization to recognize, like the Mets had to do with Carlos Beltran when they had to fire him before managing a game after the sign-stealing scandal. It's tough for an organization to get through that because it shows that you are just not paying attention to the right things during the hiring process and during the onboarding process, and you're willing to understand that there are PR things that could completely change your organization. And that's what's happening more and more, both in sports and in business. PR is almost a driver now of action, and so you've got to really have your antenna up. Yeah, it seems like Jarmo Kekalainen, the Columbus Blue Jackets general manager, has been missing something throughout his tenure. Maybe this is another thing where this is this is some pretty clear oversight. It might put this team in a hole to start the season. And Kekalainen, uh, we thought at least coming into this year, was on his last hire, and that hire uh, is already out the door. And you're right about Babcock. No way he's just walking away because it's the right thing for the organization. He was definitely, definitely told uh, to do that. David, uh, we're looking forward to your thoughts on Babcock. We'll listen to that in full. But we appreciate you giving us a sample and coming on this morning. Absolutely. Have a great day. Uh, you as well, and enjoy the run as much as you can and the carbs. Uh, that's carbs. David, David Sampson of the Nothing Personal Podcast. Uh, let's get to the, something to chew on, brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. Now, this is more of an idea mm. rather than like a story, but I, I think of the headline because we haven't talked about week two in the NFL. The headline for me is the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, 0-2 to start the season, losing their second division game already. And I, I think there's a, a an idea or a chance that they have willingly thrown away their season by playing Joe Burrow too early. He does not look right. He does not seem right after having that calf injury. Mm-hmm. He's re-aggravated that calf injury. He's only thrown for a total of 304 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception across two games. He hasn't been right. Mm-hmm. And now 0-2 in such a hole already and now dealing with that injury once again. 
I wonder, and I'm asking you, Gunner, mm-hmm. have the Bengals already thrown away their year? Season from hell. Every year there's a team. Why isn't it the Bengals? Now, it's only two weeks in. It's the NFL. Plenty of other people will fall flat, flat on their face as the year goes on. I've seen enough. And maybe this is spoken by a guy who lost a Bengals bet yesterday because I needed a <laughs> touchdown and 50 yards from Jamar Chase. So maybe that's why I'm saying this. But I think it's just the way things are trending. There are two nightmare scenarios for the Bengals. It is this one playing out where mm-hmm. it is truly the year from hell. Or maybe even worse is the they get everything together in week 11 and go on a run that's not good enough to make the playoffs because we see what that division is going to be this year. There is no room for starting on the back foot in that division. And I just think that the Bengals are, I mean, we see it all the time. I know they weren't the Super Bowl loser. I know that was the Eagles, but we see it all the time with these teams who make deep, deep runs and it just never seemed, or it's so hard to connect from one year to another. And also just to tie it into that, should make you kind of appreciate what the Bills have been able to do in this run. Now, I'm not ready to gift them anything quite yet this year, although it was a really impressive win for them yesterday. Mm-hmm. But it just goes to highlight how hard it is to stay at the level that the Bills have been at. Yeah, I'm a little less uh, concerned about the Bills. I thought, I thought looking at it last week, we were going to come on this morning and beat. That was going to be one of the mm. main stories. I didn't know Mike Babcock was going to resign. Uh, but that the Bills were in like a load of trouble. But yeah, uh, yeah they, no, they, okay. they helped themselves yesterday. They look okay. And they got a run game all of a sudden. Uh, we will talk about the Bills and the Bengals after the break with our next guest, NFL editor for the score, Brendan Deeg. Uh, what's his top storyline after week two in the NFL? We'll find out that and more next. Covering the Blue Jays from an analytical perspective. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Week two in the NFL, nearly in the books. Two Monday nighters tonight. Is that a change? Was it two Monday nighters in week one before? Yeah, used to be. Uh, then we had the. What happened there? Well, I forget. There was like a weird. Uh, there was like a weird sideline reporter we all felt bad for one year because oh, yeah. he just oh, completely yeah. froze up. It wasn't quite Chevy guy level stuff, but it was. Uh, it was awkward. I'm remembering that. I forget his name, which I think is yeah. a good thing because I think during the moment it was like, oh, we're never going to forget this. I, then it turned. <laughs> we were like, this guy is going to be president. We all feel. <laughs> So bad for him, and uh, guess what? Yeah, I forget his name, and like you said, probably for the best. Well, maybe our next uh, guest can help us out with the name. Uh, NFL editor at the score, I hope Brendan not. Teague, joins us. Uh, do you remember that fateful <laughs> Monday night? Sorry, I, I missed what you guys were talking about at the beginning there. My, my apologies. Well, we were talking about the uh, Monday nighter a couple years ago. Uh, it was the second. It was the second of the double one. It might have even been in Mexico City, and there was just a sideline reporter. I feel like he completely froze up, yeah, or it, it just it was, was really one. awkward. I'm remembering. Oh, it was this. against the Denver Broncos. Yes. It, was, um, it was the head coach. It was um, it was Dave Joseph, right? It was yeah, Joseph, it, yeah. See, we remember yeah, Vance yeah. Joseph. We don't remember him. This is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the reporter's name, but that was that was an all-time sideline reporter moment. I do remember that. There you go. Vance Joseph is having the time of <laughs> yes, his life. That's what it is. We, yeah. fi- we finally got there. We don't know his name, which means, uh, I don't know, maybe things are better for him uh, a couple of years later. Uh, I don't know if things are better for Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Bengals this year. Uh, Burrow, for me, and the Cincinnati Bengals struggles, probably my biggest storyline from at least the first two weeks uh, how dire is it right now for Cincinnati? And are they going to regret not like taking it a little slower with that calf injury that Burrow uh, suffered? Because you know maybe maybe it's going to impact this season more than it should have. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm officially worried about the Cincinnati Bengals. First off, if you start 0-2, it's very hard to make the playoffs. Um, we all know getting off to a slow start in the NFL can cripple your team. Um, you're, you're kind of starting from the behind already. Uh, teams are going 2-0, 1-0 um, in your division, especially in the, in the AFC North and one of the toughest divisions in football. So that's not good. And then Joe Burrow's calf injury is definitely a problem here. He came, uh, he uh, said in the press conference after the game that he, he retweaked uh, the calf uh, late in the second quarter um, in, in the game. And he said he doesn't know how it's going to fuel the next couple of days. So Joe Burrow has to be at 100% for this team to kind of go on a run here. And then, guys, the offense is just really bad right now. There's no other way to put it. Their bread and butter, um, the Cincinnati Bengals, is pushing the ball down the field. We all know when they're at their best, they're throwing goal balls, those deep passes to Jamar Chase, D. Higgins down the sidelines. They're just getting none of that right now. The Bengals only have six completions on balls traveling more than 10 yards this year, zero over 20-plus yards. So they just can't get anything deep. It seems like everything is just hard. It's tough. They can't – like, when they make a big play, you're almost like, wow, like, finally, they did something. Like, they finally <laughs> got a, a, a completion. Like, it just – everything feels so tight. It just feels not Cincinnati Bengals-like. Um, and that's on the offensive side of the ball. On the defensive side of the ball, like, they're not getting any – Pushed at the quarterback. Lamar Jackson was only pressured on 9.1% of his dropbacks yesterday. There was no push on the, uh, from the defensive line. Uh, yeah, like, I think the biggest storyline um, over the first two weeks is the Cincinnati Bengals. And cause a lot of people had this team winning the Super Bowl, right? Like if you, if you uh, surveyed a lot of experts and a lot of people before the year, you would have got a lot of Cincinnati Bengals or going to the Super Bowl or winning the Super Bowl comments. And it's, uh, it's a rough start in Cincinnati Bengals land. Yeah, it has been. It, it has all the makings of a of a year from hell. And uh, just to just to tie a little bow on it, our man's name was Sergio Dip. Uh, that was oh, who yes. was uh, given Vance Joseph the time of his life. So uh, <laughs> hey, good luck to him wherever wherever he is out there. I'm sure uh, quite quite successful. Uh, a lot of interesting games I, I can pick at. I mean, just about I, I don't know two thirds of the score lines we look at yesterday. I think uh, we can read a lot into. It's the beauty of these early uh, NFL games. You know, one that I'd say I was the most surprised by probably is the 49ers squeaking out a win over the Rams. Uh, not surprised that the 49ers won. I am surprised it looked the way it did and the scoreline was was as tight there. I mean, we all had the AFC North penciled as this division where who knows what can happen. And I don't think the teams are as high end in the as the NFC West, but it uh, feels like maybe that's a little closer than we all expected as well. Yeah, the Rams have been a surprise this year. I, I think uh, I think I'm, I'm finally kind of coming around on the fact that this team can be good as long as Matthew Stafford stays healthy. My take heading into the, the year with the Los Angeles Rams don't have the talent around Matthew Stafford. They're kind of high end. Um, they're, they're built up, uh, from the top uh, from the top down. You have Matthew Stafford, Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup. Without that, kind of what do you have? We know we all know Cooper Cup is injured um, at the start of the season. But Puka Nakua, man, like have yourself a first two uh, first two games. He broke the record for the most um, uh, most receptions. Um, from a wide receiver in his first two games in NFL history. He's basically just completely taken over the Cooper Cup role. Like, they've, they, it's been a seamless transition dropping in Puka Nakua through, uh, for Cooper Cup. And then Matthew Stafford, like, I know he had that pick six that kind of ruined the game yesterday um, in, in, the, in the fourth quarter. That kind of iced the game and put them out of range, um, put them out of range to win it. But that was a hard-fought battle. And the 49ers, like, Brock Purdy had a great week one. Um, he was awesome. He's probably one of the, like, a top-five quarterback. And week one, and he, he really was hitting every open receiver. He was moving them in the pocket. He was getting away from pressure. And then in this game, he missed some big-time throws. There was like uh, three, at least three or four throws kind of like 20 yards down the field that he didn't miss. And if you hit those, it's, it's a different ball game. 
But yeah, the NFC West has been good. I, I was I was really high on the Seattle Seahawks heading into this year, um, and it was nice to kind of see them uh, make my take at least somewhat look like it was going to come true in that game against the Lions. That was a big time win heading into Detroit and beating that team, especially the Seahawks offense kind of clicking on all cylinders. You know, Smith looked really good. Um, like we already about, I already said the 49ers look good in week one. The Rams will look good. So that's a vision. Even the Arizona Cardinals yesterday, like giving the New York Giants a run for their money. So that division is a little better than everyone thought it would be. Was yesterday example, uh, or an example, excuse me, that nothing really has changed for the Detroit Lions? Like, yeah, they're still going to play exciting games and the overs are going to hit more often than not. But I think the expectation this year was supposed to be, hey, we're something different. We've matured. We're more refined. We just beat the Kansas City Chiefs on opening. Like, wasn't it supposed to be different? And then against Seattle, it just seems like, oh, that's the same old Lions team. Yeah, I think their defense was really disappointing yesterday, and I think that's where if you were a Lions fan, you were hoping they would get better. They added some guys in free agency, um, C.J. Garner-Johnson from Philadelphia, and then they added Cam Sutton, the Steelers' number two corner. They paid him some money to be a starting corner this year, um, and the secondary just was awful yesterday uh, in general. Geno Smith completed over 70% of his passes. He was very efficient. He finished fourth in EP for a player of all quarterbacks, so that means he was moving the ball consistently and being efficient with the offense. Um, and the Lions just didn't have a pass rush. Like, Geno Smith was only hit one time yesterday on 41 dropbacks. And I don't know if you watched that game, but that was that one time when Geno Smith ran, was running around, and he, like, ran all the way almost to the back. Like, he, the went, he went full Orlovsky nearly, Brendan, <laughs> <Yeah>. honestly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like that was, but that was the only play that he got a hit yesterday. And I think if you were, if you were um, kind of betting or trying to handicap that game, you were going, okay, the Seattle Seahawks are down. Their first, their top starting tackles in Charles Cross and a Lucas. Aiden Hutchinson is, is on the other sideline. They're going to get pressure on Geno Smith all day, and that just didn't happen. The Lions got absolutely torched yesterday when they were in their base defense. That means when you have three linebackers on the field, the Seattle Seahawks kept putting out big, heavy personnel. So they they ran 12, uh, 13 personnel, which means you have three tight ends on the field at an alarming rate yesterday, and it was the most efficient offensive personnel group out of any offense in the NFL in week two. So they were just forcing the Lions to stay big and have their, their weak linebackers on the field, and the, the Seahawks were just torching them through through the air with that, and those play-action passes. Like, it was it was a really impressive showing from the Seahawks' offense, especially considering the Seahawks' offense in, in week one was absolutely awful. They ran 14 plays in the second half in week one and only had 12 yards in the second half. So it was, it was kind of a, a complete turnaround for that offense. But just back to the original question with the Lions, I, I think they're going to be fine, um, like, in general. Their offense clicked yesterday. Jared Goff was awesome. He completed 69% of his passes. Um, he was really efficient. So, and that's it, it, with the Lions heading into this year, the biggest problem was the defense. Like, you, I knew they were going to have an efficient offense and, and be electric, but the defense side of the ball is still a big question mark, and that kind of came to fruition yesterday. Yeah, it is. Uh, we also got our first awesome ref moment of the year with, uh, you know, shut up. I'm talking to America right yeah. now, Gino. I'll deal with you. It's not quite as good as the the one ref who said he was giving them the business for the personal foul. <laughs> that is still the gold standard, but uh, I did I did enjoy that. Uh, one yeah, Gino, Smith, Gino Smith had two of the best mic'd up moments through the first two weeks. I don't know if you guys saw when Aaron Donald was rushing at him oh, in week one. Oh, my going, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, then, and then he had this one. So Gino Smith has been entertaining for us over the first two weeks. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit how many times I audibly laughed out loud uh, in a row having heard that clip. I am still undefeated. If someone sends it to me right now and I hear the, oh my God, I still will laugh out loud because it's uh, it's extremely, extremely funny. Uh, again, I could just sit here and talk to you about every game pretty much yesterday because there's so much to read into. Uh, I'm going to go to the Sunday Nighter. 
early on, looks like the Dolphins' offense was going to roll. They were putting up points, having no problem moving down the field. They get just seven points in the second half of that game. They do pick up a victory over the Patriots. But, uh, man, the, the AFC East, again, I know we've said it about just about every division so far, another interesting one. I mean, I think the Bills are clearly at the top of it, but they have some questions. A lot of them got answered yesterday. We know what happened with the Jets there. And then you just see the way those two teams played each other yesterday. Personally, the Patriots, I, I feel like they're going to be limited, but playing a lot of these tough games where we talk about how ah, there's a lot of good pieces, there's a lot of good bones there, but they just don't have the, the playmakers. What did you see in the, the Sunday night or last night? I thought the Miami Dolphins offense in the first half was really impressive, especially that last drive at the end. I think there was about a minute, a buck 50 left in the second half, and they just drive all the way down the field and score a touchdown. And, and that was kind of the, the difference in this game. Um, the Miami Dolphins offense is getting the ball like at a, quickly at an alarming rate, which is not alarming, like in a good way, like the way that they're just kind of counteracting their bad offensive line. The Dolphins heading into this year, one of my biggest concerns with them was that they had a bottom five offensive line in the league. And they still do, but Mike McDaniel's doing such a good job of countering that. Tua Tagovailoa yesterday got the ball out at the fifth or the fourth quickest rate in, in, since 2020. So they were just get, uh, short gaming the crap out of the New England Patriots defense, getting the ball quick, quickly getting the uh, in the ball in the playmaker's hands and pushing the ball downfield. And Tua Tagovailoa was like accurate. He was hitting every pass that he needs to, that he needs to make. That throw to Braxton Berrios. Um, on the right sideline, almost scoring a touchdown. Unreal. The second half was one of the best throws all year. His touch has been has been awesome. And yeah, the Patriots defense defense wasn't going to go down without a fight. Like they they obviously adjusted in the second half. Um, they got some pressure on Tua. They forced that um that bad interception down the left sideline. It was just like a, a go ball to Jalen Waddle. Christian Gonzalez, the rookie cornerback, made a great play. He's been awesome for them. The Patriots have so many good young uh, players in the defensive uh, in their defensive backfield. Marte Mapu was a draft pick I really liked. He started. Christian Gonzalez is starting a first round pick. So that Belichick defense has the talent and the horses to kind of be a top five defense. They're just offense is limited, like you said. Uh, Mac Jones was kind of up and down after having a really good week one against the Eagles. He was a roller coaster yesterday. Um, now that they, it was really a tough start for the Patriots, if you think about it, right? Like you had to go. You had to host the Philadelphia Eagles, the team that made the Super Bowl last year in the NFC, and then you have to host the Dolphins on, on Sunday Night Football. So, 0-2 start, but it was kind of predicted that way. Um, like I, I didn't expect New England. They were the underdog of both those games, but they put up a fight, but they're 0-2 start, so it's a little tough to kind of claw out of that. But it's going to be interesting to see um, if the Miami Dolphins can keep this up. And if Tua Tagovailoa can stay healthy, like if this guy can stay healthy and, and the Tyreek Hill can stay healthy and Jalen Waddle can stay healthy, they're, they're going to have a good offense. I was My biggest concern was if Tua Tagovailoa can stay upright um, for 17 games, and so far it's worked out. Yeah, I think I'm adopting the Dolphins as my uh, the team I'm cheering for for a financial reason this year. I guess I've already adopted them, but like it, they are fascinating, and, and I want Tua to stay healthy. I want to see what that offense can accomplish. Vic Fangio's got to make sure he tightens up that defense just a little bit. There was a lot of uh, hope that he'd be able to do that. It seemed like the Patriots are moving the ball pretty good, and I think the Patriots... 0-2 against the spread, but it feels like a team that is going to be able to overshoot expectations just a little bit, despite being 0-2 in that regard uh, so far. One other player I'm really, really interested in is Anthony Richardson. He exits yesterday's game with a concussion after running for two touchdowns. Uh, I only saw the red zone highlights, but I am pretty, pretty fascinated by this player. I'm hoping this injury or this concussion doesn't hold him out of the lineup too long. 
What are you seeing from Richardson or what have you seen from Richardson? And how is he stacking up against the other rookie quarterbacks? I know Stroud had a pretty good game as well uh, yesterday, but it seems like Anthony Richardson has the possibility of doing or the splashiest rookie season. We'll call it that. Yeah, I've been really impressed with Anthony Richardson. If you're an Indianapolis Colts fan, you've got to be ecstatic with, with how this has started. Um, one, of my, one of my biggest concerns, and I think everyone's biggest concern with Anthony Richardson heading into his rookie year was his processing and how he's going to handle NFL defenses because he's just really inexperienced. He hasn't started many games at Florida. He completed um, below 60% of his passes at Florida. Like, it, it's a completely different ballgame when you get to the NFL. you got NFL defensive coordinators. You have NFL athletes. It's not like college where you're going to be playing – some of these guys are end up are going to end up working for their dad's car rental shop in, in a couple of years. Like it, it gets different when you get to the NFL, and Anthony Richardson has really adjusted to it well. He's processing well. He's reading. He's going through his progressions. First read isn't there. He's looking to second read, and that was something that everyone was worried about. He's it looks like the mental side of the game is already there for him, and I just think the pairing of Shane Steichen, the, the Indianapolis head coach, uh, Indianapolis Colts head coach, was a perfect match in heaven for these two. And, uh, Shane Steichen, of course, led Jalen Hurts' offense in, in Philadelphia for 2021 and 2022, helped turn Jalen Hurts into a top five, top seven quarterback, whatever you want to rank them. And, and they have very similar game styles, right? They're, they're both run quarterbacks, pass first, and then run second. And Anthony Richardson's run, um, rushing attack is, is awesome, and it could be kind of a weapon for this team going forward. Of course, he had two rushing touchdowns yesterday um, before he left the game with a concussion. And the Colts' offense needs that because Jonathan Taylor is on the sidelines right now. You're, you're running Deion Jackson out there. So I think Anthony Richardson can kind of be the lead for this run game. Shane Steichen knows how to build a rushing offense around a, a running quarterback. So I think that's been impressive. And I, guys, I was super impressed with C.J. Stroud yesterday. He was shot for, due for 384 yards, two touchdowns. Um, he, he is, I believe, second in the NFL in passing yards, second or third through two weeks. And with that use of Texans offensive line, the Texans were out four starting offensive linemen already in week two. And for CJ Stroud to be able to do what he did, I know the Colts secondary is bad, but I kind of stopped the CJ Stroud. He's looked great. And I know like, I don't want Bears fans to catch a stray right now, but CJ Stroud over two games looks way more polished, but just a much better pocket passer than the guy that preceded him in, in, or that was before him in Justin Fields at, at Ohio State. So, I, I have been super impressed with CJ Stroud so far and, and Anthony Richardson. The AFC, uh, AFC uh, South quietly has uh, some good young quarterbacks in that division. Yeah, I've, I was pretty bullish on Richardson. I didn't know what it would turn into this year, but just seeing all the physical tools he has, and, you know, I'm maybe an idiot for getting too uh, worked up by this, but once I saw his teammates voted him captain, I was all in in on this guy. And like you said, uh, if you're going to blueprint things, getting the guy who shepherded Jalen Hurts through the start of his NFL career, uh, certainly, certainly not a, a bad idea. Uh, another game I want to ask you about, Falcons Packers uh, I think a lot of people may be uh, kind of tuned out on this one and were surprised to see uh, the way the game ended Falcons squeaking out a 25-24 win I mean Bijan Robinson was pretty special in that one I think it was 170 uh, combined yards that thereabouts but it's Jordan Love that I think a lot of people are focused on here I mean if you just look at the numbers 14 for 25 a buck 50 passing certainly not what you want in today's NFL but three touchdowns there obviously he is uh, much like the rookie somebody we're really, really focused on. What did you take away from the Falcons squeaking out the win over the Packers? Yeah, I was impressed with both these teams throughout the game. I know Packers fans are going to be disappointed because they, they blew that game. Like, that was a game they should have won. Um, they, they were up big in the second half, and then to lose 25-24 is disappointing. But Jordan Love's been awesome. This is now back-to-back games with three touchdowns. 
Um, the Packers' offense led the league in drop-back EPA uh, per play in Week 2, so they were the most efficient passing offense throughout, uh, in, in Week 2. And they, they, I think they missed Aaron Jones a little bit in the second half. I think, I think they were without Christian Watson and Aaron Jones and the starting left tackle and David Bakhtiari. So arguably three of like their best offensive players to be able to kind of uh, compete in that game was impressive on um, my end. I think the Packers are going to be just fine. They were my NFC North um, predict, uh, team to win the division. And that NFC North, everyone lost in week two. So they're, they're still on track to, to, uh, for my prediction to come true. And then the Atlanta Falcons, I kind of stopped them for coming back and winning that. And I got to give Arthur, Arthur Smith some love, the head coach of the Falcons. They went for it on four fourth downs, got three of them yesterday. And those fourth down conversions were the key to the game. If they don't go for it and be aggressive, they don't win this football game. And like B. John Robinson, man, 19 carries for 124 yards. He looks as advertised. Like the way he moves, man, it's just different. He looks like already the best, like the most lethal running back in the NFL. And then I, Desmond Ritter, I, I'm, it's just an absolute roller coaster ride watching that kid. Uh, I, I don't really know what to make of him yet through two weeks. Uh, he made some mistakes early on in the game. He didn't have a, a, a good start, but. The way he was able to kind of just make uh, off-script throws and the way he's able to like, turn his arm in different arm angles and fit the ball in tight spaces, I was impressed in the second half. Like, leading that team on the comeback is not easy to do, especially against a veteran Packers defense. So, um, hats off to Falcons. Um, also, hats off to Packers. That was, that was an electric game. And I was really intrigued by that game heading into this week because I was really curious, like, is there another team in the NFC besides the 49ers, the Eagles, and the Cowboys and kind of come to life? And both those teams showed something, and I think they're going to be uh, tossed out every week. I had the Cowboys and Jets circled as a game of uh, interest in week two, but the game was far from interesting because Zach Wilson remains uh, Zach Wilson. Uh, Robert Sala kind of poured cold water on the idea, uh, but do you expect the Jets to go out there and try to get themselves a quarterback and salvage this season? I do. They have to. Um, I, they, they can't do this. They can't keep running out Zach Wilson. Uh, the New York Jets had the, were the least efficient offense in the NFL in week two by a wide margin. The Jaguars were 27th, the Jets were 28th, and it was a big gap. So the New York Jets offense cannot continue to run like this. And we were talk, I was talking about this last night with a buddy. We were just going, like, imagine you're the Jets defense. Like, you finally get a quarterback after last year. You finally, like, you, you were the best defense arguably in the NFL last year. You, you willed this team to a 7-10 record. If you just had, like, mediocre quarterback play, you're making the playoffs. And then to watch like, your quarterback that you were just like hyped up for and you were so happy to have go out in week one, and that must, just must have been demoralizing for that unit, especially the way that game ended in week one. Like there was a lot of up, there was a lot of highs, a lot of lows. It was kind of just a really tough, uh, tough spot to go into Dallas and win in week two. Um, so I think they have to do something. What they can possibly do, the options are limited here. I, I've been banging his drum. I, I really want to see Jameis Winston in the New York Chester's. I just think it would be awesome. I think Jameis Winston deserves another shot in the NFL to start with the team. Um, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, though. The Saints are probably not going to get rid of him. Uh, that He's like a good backup option, um, just in case Derek Carr goes out. Andy Dalton's out there. It's another name to, to monitor. He's a backup in, in Carolina right now. Are the Panthers willing to move off of him and just go with Bryce Young? Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's too early to tell. And that's the thing with the NFL. It's only week two. A lot of teams don't know what they are. They don't know what they have at the personnel. So a trade is kind of unlikely for at least a few weeks. And then free agency-wise, like, are we going with Carson Wentz here? I think Carson Wentz would be an upgrade over Zach Wilson. He's out there. I don't think any of, like, the older guys, like, of course, Tom Brady's been thrown at that. I don't think he's coming to New York. Um, Philip Rivers, are they calling him? He, he, there was rumors that the 49ers were calling him during last year's um, playoff run when Brock Purdy went hurt. So, 
I, I think they have to do something. Like I, I think they know what they have in Zach Wilson. We all know what they have in Zach Wilson. It's been it's been two plus years. Like he is what he is at this point. So I uh, I, I think that I think getting uh, another quarterback body in in the room is their best um, their best option. I just don't know what's out there and and uh, which which direction they'll go. Uh, two Monday nighters tonight. I know you like to uh, throw the odd wager around. So in about twenty seconds, do you have a preferred play for tonight, Brandon? Um, I, I actually do like the Carolina Panthers in this game against New Orleans Saints. I think they're going to bounce back after a tough, uh, tough week one. Um, the New Orleans Saints, in my opinion, just weren't very impressive in, in week one against um, against the Tennessee Titans. I know they kind of came back and won that game 16-15, but I thought the offense was sporadic. I thought the Titans, if the Titans had turned the ball over um, in, in, in the Saints red zone in week one, they, they would have been able to kind of win that game, which is kind of dumb decision-making by Ryan Tannehill in, in, in the red zone. I think Bryce Young and, and the Panthers are going to come up firing in this game. Um, I, I think they're going to – and it's a divisional, a divisional game. I think they're going to want to come – come in and try to win the team, keep themselves in the, in the NFC South push. Um, so I'm all over the Carolina Panthers over the Saints tonight. Yeah, we'll see if Bryce Young can uh, keep up with the other young quarterbacks who have uh, showed out pretty well to start the season. This was fun, Brendan. We appreciate you jumping on this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys. Have a good one. That's Brendan Deeg of the score. Quickly, he skirted past the the obvious answer to solve the Jets quarterback problems. Which is? Our sweet Canadian prince and guest mm. on this very show. When he talked to me, just a couple of guys from Oakville slash Burlington chopping it up. Nathan Rourke. Mm. It can't be worse. You get the story of the nice Canadian in there. He's saying, A, they're doing funny Tim stuff. It writes itself. It can't, at the very worst, or at the very worst, yeah, the very worst case scenario, it's just the polar opposite of Zach Wilson and all the defense. Like, I mean, this guy stinks, but he's so nice. We love him. It's not going to, you know what Nathan Rourke would never do and say, do you feel any, do you feel bad or whatever the answer was he gave last year? Do you feel like you owe the defense something? He wouldn't say, no, I don't. He would have owned it completely. So honestly, get my sweet Canadian Prince rotten out of Jacksonville's practice squad. Sign him up, New York. Let's say, go. Is Strebler there? Chris Strebler still mm. in a practice squad with the Jets? I don't know if two CFL quarterbacks would, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> would placate the New York audience, but I agree with you. I think Nathan Rourke uh, is a little bit more prepared uh, than Zach Wilson to win ball games in the NFL uh, right now. Uh, just a reminder, the inaugural PWHL draft takes place today. We'll be airing live coverage rounds one through four here on Sportsnet. Coverage starts at 1 p.m. Eastern on Sportsnet 1 and Sportsnet Plus. Looking forward to that. Uh, also looking forward to the final hour. We've got a big one. Kevin Barker to go over the Blue Jays weekend and then Elliot Friedman will join us at 8.30 to talk about Mike Babcock and, you know, training camp starting this week in the NHL, which is obviously a ton of fun. Uh, We will do Barker and we will do Friedman next.